1 Corinthians 7, 7 to 9, 17, and 25 to 31. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if, as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it is not theirs to keep, those who use the, kings, the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. The word of the Lord. We're in a series of conversations about topics that are contested in our culture, but that also involve an often overlooked reality that we are embodied creatures. Last week we were talking about marriage. This week we're talking about singleness. There are a lot of single people in this church but there is no one single experience of being single. Some of you are young and really hoping that one day you will get married and have a family. Others of you are uh, a little bit older, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, marriage has not become a reality in your life. Um, and you're also realizing that even though you may want to be married, it might not become a reality in your life. Still others of you used to be married, but whether through the death of a spouse or divorce, you find yourself single again. And if you are married, the reality is 50% of you will be single again someday. There are many different experiences of singleness. So what do we do with that? What does it mean to be single? In 2005, my 20th high school reunion was approaching. I was pushing 40, I had been a Christian for about eight years, and I was single. I didn't want to be single, but that was my reality at the time. And I was filling out a survey for the reunion uh, with questions like my age and occupation and where I lived, things like that. Uh, but one of the questions was my relationship status. But the box for me to check didn't just say single, there were options. They wanted to be cute about it. One of the options was something like single and can't stand it. Another option was single and loving it. And I remember feeling really frustrated with those options because single and loving it made it sound like I was out there having all this promiscuous sex, which wasn't true. I was committed to the Christian vision of sex for marriage only. But single and can't stand it made it sound like I was like pitiful and miserable, which also wasn't true. Because there, even though I wanted to be married, there were a lot of really wonderful things about my life. 
And you know, even though throughout the years I had thought and talked with my other single friends a lot about what it meant to be single, that survey pressed the question home to me in a new way because I was at a point in my life where I was still young enough to have a hope of being married, but also getting old enough to realize that that might never become my reality. God never promised me a spouse. And, and I really had to wrestle with the question, what does that mean for me? What does it mean to be single? And, and especially, how do I find joy in the midst of a situation that I would prefer to be otherwise? This passage we just read is the most famous discussion in the Bible about singleness, but it's very misunderstood. So let's take a look at this passage and learn three things about singleness. First, what it's not. Second, what it is. And third, what we do with it, okay? What singleness is not, what singleness is, and, and what we do with our singleness, okay? First, what it's not. Uh, one of the challenges about singleness is that there are so many misunderstandings that we can't possibly cover them all. But let me focus on two in particular. First, singleness is not a tragic deficiency, Paul himself was single. And over and over in this passage, he talks about the inherent goodness of singleness. Would you take a look with me? He says in verse 7, I wish that all of you were single as I am. In verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. And maybe the one I get the biggest kick out of, verse 28 to those who, marry, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. <laughs> Paul is talking about the inherent goodness of singleness. And yet, both in our culture and in the church, we have a tendency to think of singleness as some kind of deficiency, as something that is, is inferior and less than and sometimes even sinful. But did you know that for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, singleness, and especially virginity, was celebrated, encouraged, and oftentimes thought of as more spiritual and therefore superior to people who were married. Now, I think obviously this idea of spiritual superiority is a problem, and there were other problems as well. So that roughly 500 years ago, when Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin came along, they saw some of these problems. They saw problems like supposedly celibate clergy, wink, wink, having mistresses and illegitimate children. They saw the church using celibacy as a way of holding on to property and power. And yet, in their desire to correct a problem, as so often happens, um, they ended up overcorrecting in a way that produced even more problems of the opposite kind, including this idea that the only reason anyone would ever not get married was if they have a special gifting and calling from God. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But as a result, it became axiomatic that um, marriage and family is the only truly ideal way to be a Christian. And we live downstream from that. So for instance, less than 10 years ago, one very prominent uh, Christian pastor here in America said this. He said, the most devastating attack on marriage today is coming from singleness. 
Singleness is an assault on marriage. This escalating self-preoccupation, personal ambition, personal development that creates a kind of terminal singleness is devastating on the family. I just see singleness as a disaster. Now, maybe some of you have heard similar messages in other churches. But Sam Alberry is a, an Anglican priest. He's single. He's also same-sex attracted and celibate. He wrote a great book I recommend called Seven Myths About Singleness. In that book, here's what he says about that quote. He says, that speaker is expressing a godly concern, and yet the underlying problem is not with singleness, but with selfishness. Think about it. Yeah, you could stay single for selfish reasons. You could also get married for selfish reasons. Both marriage and singleness are, are good. They're a gift. And, and, and the church has celebrated them. The Bible celebrates them. And we should celebrate those things too because singleness is not a tragic deficiency. But second, singleness is also not a spiritual superpower. Within the church, this is probably the biggest misunderstanding about singleness. And it comes from verse 7 in this passage. Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each, each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. There's this idea in the church, this thing that um, people talk about called the gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy. For many people, it means the same thing. It's this idea that um, in order to be single, you need a special gift because singleness is so hard that, that you need a gift. It's like a superpower that enables people to cope with singleness and celibacy in a way of which mere mortals are incapable. And oftentimes, it also includes this idea of a lowered sex drive and a freedom from sexual temptation. It's a very common idea in the church. And, and, um, and for instance, Albert Shee is a Christian writer. He wrote another really good book about singleness. You can barely see it, but it's called The Single Issue. Wonderful book. In that book, he compares this idea of singleness as a special gift to having anesthesia during a surgery. The idea is that, you know, singleness is something so painful that you need a special gift just to be able to endure it. This is a very common idea. So I remember when I was in my 30s and me and my single friends would be talking about singleness and we'd say, do you have the gift? No, I don't have the gift. <laughs> do you know anyone who has the gift? I don't know anyone who has that gift. Would you like the gift? I'm not sure if I want a gift like that. <laughs> who wants to be a eunuch for the kingdom of God? Such a common idea in the church. And yet, friends, this whole idea is a very modern interpretation within the broader history of Christianity. And, and scholars like Sam Alberry and Albert Shee and many others are, are, have been very good to point out the many problems with this interpretation. First, um, this idea of singleness is a superpower. It treats singleness as a special gift that's so painful, like a root canal, that you need a special gift just to be able to endure it. And yet, as we've just seen, Paul says singleness is inherently good. Second, this idea assumes that sexual self-control is something that you need a special gift of the Holy Spirit to, uh, to in, uh, withstand. In fact, I've actually heard people say things like, yeah, I'm single, but I don't have the gift 
So that means I'm free to hook up and sleep with people I'm not married to. Friends, listen, sexual self-control is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. What's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. What's the last one? Self-control. And every single Christian is called to grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, including self-control. I mean, why would we think that only single people have need of sexual self-control? I mean, our world is full of tragic reports about the desperate need that married people have of sexual self-control too, isn't it? Another uh, problem with this idea of singleness as a special superpower is that it's oblivious, seemingly, of the reality that Paul is talking about more than one gift in this passage. Look carefully at what he says. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. In other words, if singleness is a gift, then so is marriage. And yet we never hear people talk about, well, I have the gift of marriage, or I don't have the gift of marriage. We never hear people say things like, well, yeah, I'm married, but I don't have the gifts, therefore I'm free to leave my family. If we don't talk about marriage like that, why in the world would we talk about singleness like that? Friends, both marriage and singleness are a gift not because you need a, sp- a special superpower in order to be able to endure them, be- but because both of them are good. They're good. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen what singleness is not. It's not a tragic deficiency or a spiritual superpower. But secondly, we want to ask, what is singleness? What is it? Because there's a question here, and maybe some of you are thinking about it. When I was um, a new Christian in my early 30s, I was single, and I really struggled with being single. Singleness did not feel like a gift to me. And I thought that, for a long time, I thought the problem was something to do with me. Until I read Genesis 2.18. What's Genesis 2.18? You know, throughout Genesis 1, every time God creates something, he says, it is good. It is good. Behold, this is very good. Everything God creates is good until he sees the first man all by himself. And God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. And keep in mind, this is before sin and evil have entered into the world. When I first really noticed that in the Bible, I was so encouraged as a single person because I realized, hey, maybe I'm not crazy for feeling the way I do. But here's the question. How can we say that singleness is good if it looks like God is saying it's not good? Well, here's how. Notice in this passage, Paul says, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, this is a hypothetical situation. He's saying, there's this guy here. He might be engaged to be married, or he might be single. But in whatever situation he's in, Paul's saying it's good for this guy to remain as he is. Why? Because of the present crisis. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul explains a little bit later. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. And he says right after that, for this world in its present form is passing away. All of this is pointing to something we've been talking about throughout this series. The Bible is a story, one continuous story, 
that about God's promise that someday, someday, God is going to rescue us from evil, renew this material world, and reunite us with himself. The Bible is a someday story of rescue, renewal, and reunion. And the way that reunion with God gets pictured in the Bible is as a marriage between us and God. So throughout the Bible, over and over, God calls himself the bridegroom of his people. And when Jesus showed up, he had the audacity to say, I am the bridegroom. And then at the very end of the Bible, it talks about something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's Jesus, which says that that great someday we're all waiting for is a someday of ecstatic, spousal intimacy and union with God. Friends, when Paul talks about this world in its present form, he's talking about a world in which things are not the way they're supposed to be. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's another world to come, a someday resurrection world to come that has already broken into this world and begun to change our lives and our reality. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, theologians have a term for this. It's called the already and the not yet. In other words, there are two worlds. There's this world in its present form, which is not the way it's supposed to be. And there's a someday resurrection world to come. And we live in the overlap of those two worlds. And that creates a tension in our lives, kind of like being the rope in a tug of war. You're getting pulled in two different directions. But here's the big point. If you're a Christian, whether married or single, that great someday that we're all waiting for and which has already begun in our lives is a someday of ecstatic, spousal, intimate union with God. Now, here's what this means for us. If you're married today, your marriage is temporary. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says that human marriage will not exist in the someday resurrection life to come. If you're married today, your marriage is temporary. Now, when the Bible talks about that someday resurrection life, that ultimate marriage with God that we're all destined for, it's easy to think, oh, well, that's just a metaphor. And it's based on the human reality of human marriage. Friends, it's actually the opposite way around. Human marriage is not the ultimate reality. Human marriage is the metaphor for the truer, greater, deeper reality of our marriage with God. And it's crucial that we not get those two things confused with each other. For instance, when I was a kid, my grandfather had built a train set in his basement, but this was no ordinary train set. It was actually a, a to-scale replica of Keisterville, Pennsylvania, the coal mining town where my grandmother grew up. The detail in this thing was amazing. Uh, just looking at it, it was so lifelike that just looking at it, you, you really got a taste of what it would have been like to live in Keisterville, Pennsylvania. And yet, to confuse the two things, the model for the reality would have been a huge mistake. In the same way, human marriage is not the ultimate reality. It's pointing to the ultimate reality of marriage with God. And we really need to make sure we don't get those two things mixed up. But do you realize what this means? If you're married, your marriage today is temporary. But if you're single, your singleness with regard to other human beings is going to last 
forever. And it's even more than that. How? Danielle Trewick, she goes by Danny, is an Australian theologian. She's also a single woman in her 40s. She just published earlier this year uh, a book called The Meaning of Singleness. And it is by far the most thorough biblical study on singleness I have ever read. In that book, um, she makes a very compelling point. She points out that it's very easy for us um, to think that the main value of singleness is in a single person's availability for serving other people. That idea comes from this passage we just read. Uh, We didn't read the whole thing because it's so long. But later in this passage, Paul says, hey, married people are anxious about how to please their spouse, and their interests are divided. But single people, he says, are anxious about how to serve the Lord. And it's true. For most people, if you're single, there is a freedom in singleness that doesn't exist for married people. And yet, Danny Trueek points out very rightly that, um, that if we think that the main value of being single is in its availability to service, then what we're really saying is that the real value of singleness is in how you can serve others, not in singleness itself. It's a way of looking at single people and saying, what have you done for me lately? And yet, Danny Trueek says, well, what do we do with that? She looks at 1 Corinthians 7, and she says, you know what the big message in this passage is? That Paul is saying, look, live your lives today in light of the life to come. And he goes through all these different examples. Did you remember he talked about, hey, if you're married, don't live as you're married. If you have money, don't live like you have money. If you're, if you're mourning, don't live as if you're mourning. He's saying, live your life today in light of the life to come. And Danny Trueek points out that what that means is that the real value of singleness is not free babysitting for your married friends. The real value of singleness is that it points to our ultimate eternal union with God. In fact, it's even more than that. Danny Trueek puts it like this, and here's how I want to put it to you. She says that marriage is a foreshadow of our union with God, but singleness is a foretaste of it. In other words, marriage, it's a model of of our ultimate reality. It's a foreshadow of our ultimate reality. But singleness is a foretaste of that ultimate reality. A very partial foretaste, to be sure, but no less real. So what do we do with this, practically speaking? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen what singleness is not. It's not a tragic deficiency. It's also not a spiritual superpower. We've seen what singleness is. It's a foretaste of our ultimate union with God. But lastly, what do we do with this? You know, every human being needs things like love, intimacy, affection, belonging, and community. And all of those things are available to every single Christian, married or single. And we're going to actually talk more about that next week when we talk about friendship But this week, let me focus on two practical thoughts, especially with regard to what do we do with our romantic and sexual longings? Because at least in my experience, and maybe for many of you, uh, that was maybe one of the um, more painful aspects of being single. What do we do with these romantic and sexual longings we have? Let me offer two practical thoughts. And by the way, this applies every bit as much to married people as it does to single people. First, We need to dethrone our romantic and sexual longings. We talk a lot about idolatry here at Central West End Church. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and we twist it 
into an ultimate thing. And we only do that with really good things. We only make idols out of good things. And in both our culture and in the church, we have a tendency to make idols out of marriage, romance, and sexual fulfillment. And I can prove it to you in three words. You complete me. <laughs> Be still my heart, Tom Cruise. That line made Jerry Maguire a great movie. But friends, it's horrible theology especially when it infiltrates the church. Many of you grew up in churches that taught what's known as purity culture. I didn't grow up in the church, so I never experienced that. But as I've listened to my friends who did grow up with that, maybe one of the things that grieves me the most is that you grew up with these constant messages that the only way you will ever flourish as a human being and begin li really living is, is when you get married. And until that day, your whole job, while you're single, is to prepare your heart for marriage. Because there's a soulmate out there somewhere for you. And so you just got to find that Boaz or become that Boaz. It, the constant message was that, um, that you got to prepare yourself for marriage as if you only start living once you get married. And one of the biggest problems with that, one of the biggest reasons that we have a tendency to see singleness as a deficiency is because of this idolatry of marriage, romance, and sexual fulfillment. But friends, there is only one throne in our heart, and there's only one God that belongs on the throne of our heart. And if idols like marriage and romance and sexual fulfillment are jumping onto that throne, then we need to learn how to dethrone those longings. But remember what we said, we only make idols out of good things. That means that dethroning our longings does not mean despising our longings. That means, secondly, that we need to learn how to devote our longings. Again, if you grew up in purity culture, one of the other most harmful things that I've heard my friends talk about is that you grew up with these constant messages of shame about your body and shame about your sexual longings. I was talking with a friend recently who grew up in purity culture, and he gave me permission to share this with you all. But I asked him, you know, what was that like for you, and what was the impact in your life? And he told me, you know, when I got married, I didn't have sex with my wife for a whole week because those shame messages were so powerful. For so many people in the church, these constant messages of shame about our bodies and about our sexual longings means that really the greater danger for you is, is not in idolizing your longings, but despising your longings. But you were made with these longings by a God who created you to find the ultimate fulfillment of those longings in him. And so devoting our longings means learning how to listen to our longings, means learning how to not shut them down, but, but to turn the volume up on them and listen to them, pay attention to them. It means giving ourselves and the other single people in our lives more space and permission and freedom to feel our longings and to express our longings. And especially it means learning how to bring those longings to God because shame flourishes in hiding. But the more we bring our longings out into the open, it has a way of dissolving the shame in our lives. Friends, we need to learn how to dethrone our longings, but also how to devote our longings. 
But there's one more question we need to talk about because unfulfilled longings are still painful. What do we do with that? In this passage, Paul says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. He talks about the call quite a bit in this passage. This word called means being called to follow Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, whatever the circumstances of your life are, follow Jesus. One of the biggest temptations in all of our lives, married or single, is that we get so focused on trying to change the circumstances of our life because we find them painful. And it's like we get a death grip on trying to change our circumstances, but the tragic irony is that not only are we almost helpless to change our circumstances, our efforts to do so result in even more pain in our lives because those pesky circumstances have a way of resisting all of our efforts to change them. But Paul is saying whatever circumstances are in, listen, he says, your circumstances might change, but whatever circumstances you're in, follow Jesus. Friends, Getting married might change your circumstances, but it will not remove pain from your life. Getting married will just introduce different kinds of pain into your life because following Jesus in an already not yet world where things are not the way they're supposed to be is going to be painful sometimes. Getting married doesn't change that. It just introduces different kinds of pain. But God's big project in your life is not changing your circumstances. It's transforming you in the midst of your circumstances. Because only the gospel gives you a Savior who is not only with you in the pain of your life, he shares your pain because Jesus is waiting for someday too. In John chapter 2, Jesus, a single Jewish man, goes to a wedding in a village called Cana in Galilee. And like any other single person at a wedding, what do you think he did? He thought about his longings for his own someday. And in the wedding, uh, at one point the wine ran out, and so his mother told him about this. But Jesus had a very cryptic and, and even abrupt reply. He said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Whenever Jesus talks about my hour, he's referring to the hour of his death on the cross. In other words, um, you know what this conversation is? Can I translate for you? Jesus' mother says, they ran out of wine. Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? It's not time for me to die yet. What? Why would a request to rescue a party, a wedding party that ran out of wine, why would that make Jesus think about his own death? Because Jesus is thinking about his own wedding. Jesus is the bridegroom. But if Jesus is the bridegroom, who's the bride? You and me. And Jesus, the reason he's so troubled at that wedding is because he knows that the only way that we can meet him at the altar is if he dies on a cross to get us there. You know, Tim Keller, the great preacher, had a preaching mentor named Ed Clowney which goes to show you that even the greatest preachers in the world need preaching mentors. But Ed Clowney once preached a very famous sermon on John 2, and in that sermon he said that Jesus sat amidst the joy of a wedding, sipping the coming sorrow of his death, so that we who sit amidst the sorrows of this world could sip the coming joy. Friends, 
we are longing for someday. And, and, and we long for that someday reunion with God, that marital spousal intimacy with God. We all long for someday. And, and waiting for that day is difficult, it's painful, it's hard. But Jesus died on a cross to make someday possible. And what's more, Jesus is waiting for someday too. Jesus is the only Savior who is not only with you in your sorrow, Jesus shares your sorrow because Jesus is waiting for someday too. Singleness is not a tragic deficiency. It's also not a spiritual superpower that removes all the pain from our lives. Waiting for someday is hard because following Jesus is hard. But Jesus died to make someday possible for all of us. Singleness is not a tragic deficiency. It's not a spiritual superpower. Singleness is a foretaste of our eternal union with God. And the more we learn how to dethrone our longings and devote our longings, the more it transforms us by transforming our pain into a sip of the coming joy. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you today that you have not left us alone that you look at us in this world and you say it is not good to be alone. You created us for intimacy with others. Father, we thank you and praise you that that intimacy is a foreshadow and a foretaste of our ultimate intimacy with you. Lord, help us to taste, to sip, to enjoy more and more um, each sip of that coming intimacy, even as we live in the pain and the tension of the already and the not yet. Father, I pray especially for our dear single friends, Lord. Um, it can be hard to be in that place. But I pray that you would encourage all of us today, Father, because um, life in an already not yet world is painful for everyone, just in different ways. Would you help all of us, Lord, to sit amidst the sorrows of this world, sipping the coming joy, because we have a Savior who sat amidst the joy of this world, sipping the coming sorrow of death on a cross. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.